So we'll invite Tanajan to give some more teaching. Those of you on the retreat will be aware there were a lot of unanswered questions yesterday. So we thought out of uh, compassion for those people who asked questions and didn't get them answered, we'll um, endeavour to carry on answering them because it can give us a chance to hear some good Dhamma teachings as well. Those of you with young kids could encourage them to be a little bit quiet so everyone can hear Tanajan's answers. So the first question, how to stop thoughts about taking revenge on someone who has done an unbelievable amount of injustice to you when when forgiveness doesn't even seem to be an option. Uh, when we consider the issue of anger and seeking revenge, we only have to look at the life of the Lord Buddha. He had to deal with a lot of injustice and harm that came his way. He had his cousin Devadatta who had been seeking revenge, trying to harm him for countless lives. It's like a karmic enemy for life after life. And in the Lord Buddha's final life as the Buddha, Devadatta tried to harm him and even kill him on many occasions. What did the Lord Buddha do? He always forgave him and, and let go. He never gave in to anger. Um, that, that was his habit of mind. He kept that right through till the end of his life. For us, how do we practice with a similar sort of situation, with someone who's out to harm us, always causing us injustice? We have to look at anger and look at what it does to our mind. You know, once it takes hold of your mind, it's very difficult to shift and just brings you endless suffering. Tends to feed itself. Once you're angry about something or towards somebody, you tend to just keep thinking over and over again about the same things, and it can intensify and get worse over time. So it's essential to establish mindfulness. We have to contemplate that in the past we've made karma, we've created the causes for this injustice to come back to us or this harm to come to us through our own karmic actions in the past. If we give in to our anger now and make fresh bad karma, well it will only continue, the whole cycle will continue with that person. Our own anger will not stop, their anger will not stop, it will just carry on and even get worse. So we have to establish mindfulness and contemplate to see the truth of this and to see that the only way we can free ourselves from this suffering is to practice forgiveness and letting go. The Lord Buddha said that the true victory for a human being is to defeat their own defilements, so, such as anger. This is much more important than achieving a victory over another person. How do we achieve a victory over our own anger? Well, we have to train, we have to practice, we have to learn to restrain our speech and our actions using precepts, morality. Internally, in our mind, we have to bring up mindfulness and really learn to change the way we're thinking and turn it towards 
thoughts of kindness, tolerance and patience. Uh, the word metta, maitri. And we have to do that over and over again, maybe over a long period of time. So you might take it as a, a challenge, but it's the most important challenge for us as human beings. To defeat others is fairly easy. It's much easier than to defeat one's own anger. So we really have to take on this challenge, otherwise we'll end up making more and more karma and suffering as a consequence. So we can take the Lord Buddha as an example in this. The next question, the idea of rebirth is very new to me. How do I make the connection between enjoying things, disliking things, etc., to the actual process of dying and being born again? Why is it difficult to experience the mind out of the body at will? So, literally speaking, when we talk about birth and death, when this physical body stops functioning, that's death, what happens next is the jitter, the mind, separates from the dead body, leaves it and goes on to take a fresh birth. At birth, or conception, the jitter, the mind, the consciousness, we say, enters the body, enters the uh, embryo at that point through the power of its karmic attachment. And the mixing together of the physical body and consciousness is so complete, so fast, so complete, it's very difficult to see anything different, see them as two separate things. And this is what we call upadana, attachment clinging. So it affects us from day one of conception right through to the end of our life. You might say it's possible for a human being to get so angry or depressed, they might have the wish in their mind just to want to die, just to want to leave the body, leave the world. But just that wish in itself is not enough for that to take place. If we really want to let go of our attachment to this body and to the world, we have to do it through practice, developing mindfulness and wisdom, training the mind to see where attachment arises and gradually abandoning that. So the Lord Buddha taught us to look at uh, kilesa, mental defilements and attachments that arise, but when we look at them, we're obviously looking at them in the present moment, not, not in the past or the future. We can see the causal link between the past. We've been born in the past and it's given certain results. We've had a life in the past. It's given certain results which affect us as we're born into this life. And this life is going to give, uh, be a cause for certain results to arise in next life. But the way to really look at the whole process and understand it clearly is to look in the present moment. Look at your mind right now in the present moment and see where mental defilements and attachment arise because these are the cause for more birth. Say for instance, you can see when your mind is in a wholesome state, one's thoughts, mental states are skillful and good, you might say the mind is on the level of a human being. We act in good ways, beneficial to ourselves and others. Uh, we live in a moral way, we have kindness, compassion and so on. 
as one practices the Dhamma, the refinement of one's uh, wholesome state of mind uh, improves. We become um, kinder, more wise, more mindful through the power of our practice. So little by little you might say the mind actually evolves or matures higher than a, the level of a normal human being to the level of a, a deva, a celestial heavenly being, for instance. And we can see how the cause for rebirth is in our own actions, in our own karma. As we practice more then, we can see how the actual level of the mind, you might say the, the realm of the mind, the level that it's on, even though physically we say we have the body of a human being, we're living in our particular life, wherever we are in this world, the actual level of the mind would be determined by our mental activity, what's going on, how we're attaching, what we're thinking of, our mental karma and actions. Our mind might be very refined or it might be very coarse, it might be very wholesome, it might be very unwholesome. The more we practice mindfulness and reflect on this, the more we can see how the level of the mind is affected over and over again by our karma. For instance, if anger arises and you attach to that mood, um, that, you might say, is the beginning of more rebirth. You know, it's laying in, uh, down a cause that will give its results. You, know, you grab hold of that angry mood with your mind and you keep doing that, well that's a cause of suffering and that will keep on giving its result back to you as long as you keep attaching to that angry mood. But if you establish mindfulness and reflect on that mood and see, well it's actually impermanent. It's impermanent, it changes, it passes away. It's actually, we say, not self. It's not a fixed person or being. It's just a mood, a condition of mind that arises and passes away. If you can see that, then it brings, to the mind, brings the mind to see actually a state we call emptiness, where the mind is liberated from its normal attachment to its moods. This is what we call tatanga vimuti, a temporary liberation of mind, because our awareness and understanding is so clear, we can see the mental state just arising, passing away, but without grasping at it or identifying with it as a self. So the important thing is to practice mindfulness and to establish mindfulness with sense contact. You know, all the time in our daily life we have sense contact. We see things, we hear things, taste, smell, touch and so on. This sense contact gives rise to attachment and we have desires based on the quality of our sense contact and how we react to it. So we have pleasure and pain and gives rise to liking and disliking um, moods of happiness and suffering and so on. This is where the whole process of rebirth begins. So if we practice mindfulness of sense contact all the time and practice observing sense contact and leave it just as it is. We see something, it may be pleasant, unpleasant and we know that but then we leave it just there. We don't grasp on with craving or clinging at that moment. Then little by little we're actually reducing the causes for further rebirth through that practice.
There's another question here. Uh, Tanajan, can you please let us know how the relics that manifested at Sri Pada, Subunakut, in Sri Lanka, how this happened, what the circumstances were? So, I'll recap. The question was about. Um, somebody's obviously heard that when Ajahn was visiting Sri Lanka many years ago, some relics of the Lord Buddha manifested uh, in his uh, monk's shoulder bag. It was actually 18 years ago. Uh, our teacher Ajahn Chah died about 20 years ago. And the year after that, we made a pilgrimage to India, a large group of uh, monks and laity. <coughs> and then the following year, so 18 years ago, um, we made a pilgrimage as a group to Sri Lanka. And as part of this pilgrimage, we decided we would uh, visit Sri Pada, sometimes known as Adam's Peak or Sumanagut in Thai. Um, a mountain where they say there's a Buddha's footprint, the genuine footprint of the genuine Buddha on top, on a, a rock right at the peak of this uh, stupa or chedi-shaped mountain. Uh, normally the tour groups from other countries that go to Sri Lanka are a bit reluctant to go up because it's a very long walk, steep walk up a hill. Uh, it's mainly the locals, the Sri Lankan local people will make that pilgrimage during the season on special days. But many people are put off because it's such a high mountain and there's no road up there. You can only walk up. So our group decided to go up. We left at around dawn and arrived at the top of the mountain around 11.30 in the morning. Some of the monks didn't make it. It's too difficult. Uh, hadn't trained enough, not fit enough, so they had to camp out halfway up the mountain and wait for everyone. And similarly, some of the lay people couldn't make it. Two lay women who were in the group made it to the top and then immediately passed out. It was so, un so tired they just became unconscious. Meanwhile, the rest of the group settled down to do chanting. We chanted paritas and we meditated. And Everybody found immediately, even though they're quite tired from this four-hour walk up the mountain, uh, they had great joy and peace of heart arise. Uh, many people entered the states of samadhi in their meditation, and the sense was that many devatas were present at this time. Um, the main devata that looks after that mountain in Thai we call Tao Sumanatewi. Sumana is the name of that devata. Ajahn invited that devata to come and share in the merits of our visit and he said the devata did come. Everyone was very peaceful. Even those who didn't make it up the hill, they were doing their own puja at the bottom of the hill, meditating and chanting. They also said they had amazing, amazingly good meditation that day. Just as we began our descent after our meditation and chanting, we'd been up there for a few hours, Tanajan had the sense that something had happened. Uh, he had been offered a little reliquary or a stupa, glass pagoda, small one that we'd carried in his bag up the hill, 
the person who offered it thought maybe there's just a chance some relics, we might find relics of the Lord Buddha or some might manifest. So they did have that thought. No relics had manifested on top of the hill during our ceremonies and meditation. But Tanajan, just as we began to walk down, had the sense maybe something has come. So opened the bag and noticed inside quite a few small relics had appeared and could see them on the base of the bag. So we looked after the bag down the hill and when we got back to our place where we, the place where we stayed, we carefully took everything out of the bag and we found at least 30 relics there. And over time, after that, they actually crystallized, became more, uh, the color became brighter and the crystallized nature of, of the relics sort of became more intense. Eventually these relics were installed in the head of the main Buddha statue in the hall in Tanajan's monastery, Mapjan Monastery in Thailand. One incident, an interesting aside to this story, there was one lady who goes to the monastery and lives in a nearby town. She had wanted to go on this trip but was unable to go for various reasons. So by chance on that day when we were going up the uh, Sri Pada, the mountain, to pay respects to the Buddha's footprint, she was meditating and she had this great sort of wish in her heart, I wish I had gone with the group, I really wanted to go up and see the Buddha's footprint. And her mind entered a state of samadhi and she had a very clear, vivid vision of our group on top of this mountain. She saw a great ray of light come out of, you might say, the sky or the heaven realms entering Tanajan's bag uh, as the relics arrived. And she noted all this, she remembered what happened up on the hill, remembered the other ladies passed out, all the, all the different details. And then when we got back, she actually asked Ajahn about this. No one had told her yet, she asked, is it true, did this happen? And he verified, yes, it did happen. She asked, well, what is it? And he said, well, it's the parami of the Lord Buddha, this light, the light energy that comes, this is the parami of the Lord Buddha. In the monastery before, we have had experience of relics manifesting and sometimes accompanied by a great ray of bright light, uh, but never outside the monastery as in this case. So this is the influence of the devas. Uh, it's just the right causes and conditions. Everybody had their respect for the Lord Buddha and were chanting and meditating and the devas obviously gave their anumodana appreciation of what happened. Tanajan, as I said, he had been recollecting the devas who had actually invited the Lord Buddha originally to come and make his footprint on that mountain, Sumana Devi. And perhaps the influence of Sumana Devi that brought these relics to manifest Tanajan went back to Sri Lanka a couple of years ago, but now he feels a little bit too old to go up Sri Pada. It's quite a walk, so not sure whether he'll get up there again. He also just mentioned as in, uh, at the end about Ajahn Chah also. Ajahn Chah, there are relics of Ajahn Chah. One way... Uh, relics were formed not just from his body, 
from the cremation, but even from the food that Ajahn Chah ate, digested and then excreted. So when Ajahn Chah died, we actually arranged to dig up the toilet pit from his toilet where he spent the last 10 years of his life. It's mainly just earth, dry earth, nothing too uh, repulsive. But dug that up, took it back to the monastery, sieved it and sorted out all the earth, separated it, and eventually gathered a, a large amount of relics from, from basically from his excrement. And once the relics had all been cleaned and bathed and collected together, Tanajan gave nine relics to each of the monks living in the monastery. Quite a few monks there, so we all got nine relics. And interestingly, there was one monk who got his little bag of nine relics of Ajahn Chah, but had no real faith in them, didn't think they were very important, just sort of put them down to one side and ignored them. There's another monk who was very, very happy <coughs> to receive the relics and every day he would chant in front of them and place flowers there and incense. And over a period of time, the monk who uh, didn't have much belief or faith in the relics, the number of relics in his little container gradually diminished from nine to eight to seven to six to five over a number of days until eventually they completely disappeared. Whereas this other monk who had a lot of faith and kept chanting and paying respects to his relics, they kept increasing in number from 9 to 10 to 11 to 12, 13 up until 18. So after a week or two, uh, they both came out and compared notes and realized, well, one's lost all his relics and the other's doubled. So interesting, relics can move like this. They can move, they can arrive, they can manifest or they can disappear. Their you know, relics come from the influence of the pure mind, the pure jitta, so they always have an aura, a radiant light aura around them. And when they appear, if, you know, some people often see that radiant light as they appear. Um, can even be seen with the naked eye, or sometimes people see it in their meditation. There's another question, if you're all keen. Um, Tanajan, you mentioned in one of your books that meditation is more meritorious than generosity and the precepts. Could you say a bit more about this? And how do we deepen and strengthen our samadhi? How important is this in our overall practice? We're talking about the benefits of the practice, um, the practice, the way of practice the Buddha gave us and does begin with dana, the practice of generosity, charity, um, practice of sharing what we have with others, supporting the Sangha, offering the four requisites, helping the poor and the sick and the needy and so on. We can do that maybe. But to keep the five precepts is like a step up. It's a little bit harder, requires more effort, more determination to keep the five precepts well and regularly. And we, to be restrained in our speech, we don't, so to not harm other people, 
in our speech to be abusive, dishonest, gossip or so on. It's quite difficult, isn't it, to do that day after day. Or some people find it very difficult not to drink alcohol. We like to drink, have social drinks and so on. It's quite difficult to give these things up. Some people find one precept easy, another precept harder. You know, some of the five precepts we find not difficult to keep, others we find very difficult to keep. But overall, to practice sila, morality, requires more discipline, more effort than the offering of dana. Of course, offering of dana is something very good because it's directly going against our tendency to be stingy and possessive and selfish, but tends to be on a more external level. It's much harder to let go of our greed, anger and delusion internally. And this is why we have to practice meditation. We have to see that it's worth training our minds in mindfulness and wisdom, uh, the mental qualities you're developing in meditation, because you're helping to show yourself what is the cause of suffering. What causes a suffering? Well, it's attaching to moods of greed, anger and delusion. And once you can see these are the cause of suffering, then you can see, well, these are the things you have to abandon and let go of. And that's what meditation brings us. It brings us that understanding and gives us the method to let go of the causes of suffering. When you practice sila, morality, you do abandon some of these things on one level but to really uproot them from your heart, you have to develop meditation. And this quality of samadhi, the, the mind that is calm and peaceful, is essential, an essential part of meditation. And of course that means it's, it's harder to do. We have to put more effort in to develop peaceful states of mind. It takes time, it takes skill and persistent effort. But of course it's worth it and the benefits of this are great. Uh, you know, if you practice meditation regularly and even if you only occasionally and in small ways experience a little bit of peace that comes with the arising of samadhi, you'll see immediately the benefits. You'll have more self-control, you'll be able to control your moods better, be more content and stable inside. Uh, you'll be more patient with difficulties in life, you won't lose your temper so much and so on. You know, these are the kind of results we can all see from our practice of meditation and we gain a lot of happiness from this. So if we practice meditation, you know, your level of your general mindfulness and understanding improves and this will affect your daily life. You'll be able to use this mindfulness you're developing in your work and other duties that you perform in your family and in society and it helps us to experience a mind that is free from suffering and this is the most beneficial thing for human beings to actually experience a mind that is complete, completely empty of suffering and at peace with itself. Do you want to hear more questions?
Tanajan, why is it at times we can calm the mind and be heedful and mindful quite easily at the start of a meditation session, but other times it seems impossible and frustrating to stay focused and to be mindful and we end up with a lot of needless thinking. These thoughts seem to come at quantum speed, lightning speed. How and what shall we do to overcome these hindrances? The main thing with the practice of meditation is to understand that it takes time. We have to practice regularly and give it the time for the mind to develop the skills and the experience in the meditation. Perhaps the thing that will help most of all to support the arising of peaceful states of mind is the practice of mindfulness in daily life. So in your daily routine you might have a time you set aside for meditation practice, maybe the morning or the evening or even both. And that's very good and if you do that regularly that will have a very powerful effect on your mind over time. But you must also between the periods of meditation try to practice mindfulness as you do your job, as you go about your daily business try to bring the mind back to the present moment and establish mindfulness if we never practice through the day we just let the mind go we let it wander around, distracted, thinking whatever it wants of course every time you come to sit meditation it will be very difficult to rein the mind in and bring it back to a state of peace because you've let it go for so long but if you practice mindfulness through the day, little by little, well, that will have its effect when you come to sit meditation in the evening. Well, you'll find your mind settles down much quicker. You also have to get the right attitude. You have to accept sometimes your mind will be peaceful, sometimes not. And just accept that and be willing to work with it. Don't judge things too harshly or, or expect too much. Just be willing to work with the mind as it is. If the mind is not immediately peaceful, then maybe have some strategies, some techniques that will help. So, some people, when they sit meditation and they're not peaceful, well, they put on a Dhamma talk and listen to that first, just to help remind them of the teachings and to calm down. Other people do chanting. Other people, if they find the mind is thinking a lot, then they use a meditation technique and they use it very quickly, so they breathe in and breathe out and just breathe in very quickly, breathe out very quickly so there's not any space for the mind to start thinking about anything else or they use a mantra like Bhutto and they say Bhutto, 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 Bhutto very quickly in their mind so there's not a, a space for any other thoughts to arise these are just two examples of what you might do for monks sometimes they go off to kind of lonely or frightening places to practice meditation because the nature of that place is that all the other trivial distractions of the mind you know, they don't seem so important the mind just drops them because of the caution and the nervousness of that place and often they're very good places for meditation in the end what you have to be willing to do is work with your mind as it is whether it's peaceful or not it's peaceful or it's disturbed just notice that it's not sure it's uncertain sometimes it's peaceful, sometimes not it's not sure, not certain, and use that as a reflection so that you don't get too upset about whatever your state of mind is.
we'll probably have to leave it there for now. Uh, those of you staying for the rest of the retreat, we might have another session uh, this evening at about six on question and answers. Um, before we finish, uh, what, there's a guided tour next for those who wanted to want to go on the guided tour around the monastery, and that will start from the kitchen. As you leave here, you can gather down at the kitchen. But before we finish, Tanajan, um, bless some little Buddha amulets which we've been giving out and we still have many more to give out so if you would like to receive one of those um, probably invite Tanajan to sit at the front everybody could actually leave the hall and enter from the side door or just go to one side of the hall and come in then you can form a line rather than all gathering around crushing Tanajan we don't want that to happen uh, maybe everyone could form an orderly line from over that side and move towards Tanajan and receive their Buddha amulet as a souvenir of this occasion. Tanajan says, as we were all meditating last night, he saw the Barami of the Buddha spreading down from the big statue down, covering over all of us as a radiant light. When we were doing the chanting, many, many devas were here yeah. coming to give their anamodana. says, don't forget when you do chanting in a place like this, then the devas will join in, they'll come. Especially the Rukha devas, the devas that live very close to the human realm, living in trees and quiet places. Just gave the example, his monastery, a while ago there was um, a group of laity doing evening chanting with the monks and in that group there was one young boy and he could see all these people dressed in white, hundreds of them behind where the monks were sitting. He's just seen the devas who were present at that time. There's really, we think about Tevadas, we want to see them think about what they look like you say oh Buddhist devas have a little crown on devas in other religions dressed differently and so on really a dev what they mean with devata means the qualities of goodness in your heart that become established your heart becomes the, the heart and the mind of a deva so normally maybe our hearts on the level of a human being we go about our business we work we have families very busy and the mind is uh, caught up with all of that but out of faith we come to practice and as we practice meditation keep the precepts, do dana the level of our mind is slowly increasing or rising uh, to the level of a deva the more these good qualities become established in our hearts then the mind inclines to the mind of a deva so this say at a time like this where you're practicing in the monastery for a few days keeping the precepts then your hearts and minds will be the minds of a deva it's already your minds are the minds of a deva now he'll give away the Buddha's relics your mind will go be uplifted to an even higher level with all the yeah. faith yeah. and the happiness that arises yeah. we also yeah, have yeah. some uh, amulets they call them somdets, amulets made of a um, very special mixture of earth and uh, dried flowers and incense from Thailand that Tanajan also blessed last night. Um, 
or one kindly brought over, offered from Thailand. She here? She cooking? Ah, one unique. Then again, just to explain that uh, Buddha relics, are similar to a Buddha statue, you might have a Buddha statue in a temple or even in your home on a shrine, and you use. Uh, make use of a Buddha statue or Buddha relics as a way of recollecting the Buddha, the qualities of the Buddha, the purity, the wisdom, the compassion of the Buddha. But one shouldn't misunderstand and think, well, one has Buddha relics now, these Buddha relics will empower me to get whatever I want in life through some kind of miracle. I can just ask and ask and ask and I'll get all that I want. Of course, that's not correct. But they're a useful means, a skillful means to arouse faith and to remind us of the Buddha and what he taught, the path of practice. And as you contemplate these Buddha relics or just contemplate a Buddha statue in the same way, you're bringing up your own mindfulness and wisdom and reflecting on the cause of suffering, the greed, the anger, the delusion that we still have in our hearts and seeing that this is something we have to abandon. The relics can't do the abandoning for us. We have to do that through our own practice, through our own effort. But they help to inspire us. They give us inspiration, energy to carry on with our practice. And so little by little we can give up what we call the sangyojana, the fetters, uh, the first three fetters Ajahn was talking about yesterday and Sakaya Ditti, attachment to the view of this body as a self um, Wichikicha, skeptical doubt, uncertainty Silapatabharamasa, blind attachment to ritual and ex- external practices these are the Sangyojana which we're abandoning as we develop mindfulness and wisdom and as you contemplate the relics, you know, some of the purity in those relics helps to inspire us. So you, as you reflect on them, you feel more peaceful, more pure in your own heart. And that helps, helps the mind to calm down so that you can see more clearly <coughs> where greed, anger and delusion is arising in your heart. So they're a very valuable um, assets or or skillful means in the practice. Once you take these relics home and you have to look after them, obviously they're an object of respect, veneration. If you have a Buddha shrine, a shelf or some kind of table or something in your house where you might have a Buddha statue or picture of the Buddha, that would be the appropriate place you have to find some kind of container, preferably that's sealed so that it can't be just knocked over by the wind or somebody carelessly knocks it over and then the relics scatter and it's very difficult to find them again. So that's something that will hold them that you can seal and place on that shrine or that uh, table or shelf where you keep your special things to do with, with Buddhism.